Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. So 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, um, which 1 Peter in, in general can be a very dense passage of scripture. And as you know, we've been going through it and talking a lot about suffering. Yeah, who likes to hear about suffering in church? Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up for the Christian Jubilee. All right. Uh, so, be- <laughs> so First Peter was him writing uh, to the diaspora, which diaspora means dispersion. Believers who are all across the ancient world and are dealing with a lot of persecution and and are actually finding out what suffering is. And last time I spoke, um, I talked about 1 Peter 2 that leads into 1 Peter 3, and he is calling us living stones. He's using this language very deliberately because believers are getting stoned. Sometimes these are the last things that they're seeing before before they die. And he says, no, we're meant to walk like Christ and see those actually as a part of our redemption. That these, we are being living stones that are building up this building that is the church of God. And in uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 6, he talks about in the beginning that, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it became intriguing to me, what is that same mind? So when you go back to um, 1 Peter 3 and 21, it says, There also is an antitype which now says of baptism, not in the removal of the filth of the flesh, but in the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And over and over between, you know, probably between uh, 4, 1, and 6, and 3, and 18, it's this phrase that keeps coming up. It says that we might not be judged or we might not live according to men in the flesh, but we should live towards God in the spirit. Sometimes when we sit in church and we get, you know, to going through these advanced theological notions and we start thinking about all these ways that we can relate to the sacrifice that Jesus had on the cross, whether it's soteriology or eschatology, which is a study of Jesus as our Savior, our salvation, or eschatology, which is the study of the end times, which everyone has an opinion of that, you know whether you're a preterist or partial preterist, and if you don't know what that is, Google it. Eschatology. So many di- diverse beliefs about it. Um, and I think whenever I read First Peter, I think about him as this person, who he was. Peter was very aware of his shortcomings and his failures and his ways that he had said things that he was going to do and ways that he didn't do it. Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never do this. And Jesus is like, surely you are going to do this. The way that he had become tied up with the Judaizers who were Christians who believed that you still needed to be circumcised in order to be a believer, still had this long list of things that you needed to do in order for you to walk into salvation. Peter was very aware of that kind of face-off that he had with Paul and Barnabas. 
And they said, actually, Jesus has made his grace available for all. Not based on what we do, not based on where we are, but based on who he is. And division exists so much among us in this world. We just divide across so many lines. Although we have so much in common, we love to divide so much. Which street do you live on? Okay, do you live on a northwest corner? Do you live on a southwest corner? Do you live in West Town? Do you live in Ukrainian Village? Do you live in, like, man, this is exhausting. <laughs> when Jesus came and the collateral damage of Jesus coming to earth was us being a united people. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no woman. There is no man. But all are united in Christ. Turn with me to Acts 15. And Acts 15 is actually this encounter where Paul and Barnabas are urged by the believers to go to Jerusalem and confront the apostles who have divided, who have said that, hey, you have to be circumcised. You can't enter into what Jesus has done. You can't be a believer unless this happens. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent. Like, this had to be a bold cat. I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they were going to Jerusalem, which is the seat of the apostleship, so to speak, where James, John, Peter, all these great titans who would actually walk with Jesus where they were leading the body of believers. And here is Paul, this young upstart who used to be one who persecuted the Christians and saying, no, unequivocally, this is wrong. In Acts 15 and 15 through 19, it says, and with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God for eternity are his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make their list longer. This is a quote from Amos 9 and 11, who was the famous justice prophet. He said, let righteousness roll down like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. He believed that God was in the midst of setting everything right. And you know what setting everything right looks like? Injustice, it looks like making his goodness accessible to everyone, no matter where they live, no matter what they have, that it is accessible to us all. And here you have these men setting up more obstacles for people to see his justice and experience his righteousness. And Paul is like, hold on, man, don't do that. No, no, please don't. We live in a world that is so full of categories. Man, how many categories can you belong to at one time? And it makes me think of Gnosticism in this time, where it was the flesh is, you know, the flesh is this ugly, horrible thing that's pulling us down. But then there's our spirit who is trying to unite us. There's a unity of the spirit that's happening. And we categorize so much that we can feel divided walking through this world. 
We'll walk it through. It's like, okay, uh, how's your uh, emotional life? My emotional life is okay. How's your spiritual life? My spiritual life is okay. How's your physical life? And we sometimes keep this unseen in our head, all these tick boxes of things. Okay, am I exercising? Okay, my physical health is okay. Am I praying? I don't know. Uh, I won't check that one yet. How's my emotional health? I cry too much. Oh, I can't check that. <laughs> and we think we're all divided. Why is the body divided? Because we think we are so many times. And this is the, Paul is even speaking into this Gnosticism, which was the popular religion and belief system of the day, to say, no, it is through the spirit and through the, through the spirit that we learn what the will of God is for us. We build up all these great, amazing arguments, and I want to take it back to the basics, which is our consciences. How do we hear the Lord? Something basic that we've all had since we were a child and we were able to put together thoughts. And he says, Peter says in 1 Peter um, 3 and 16, and he repeats this as, as well as death in the flesh, but made a light Live in the spirit. And 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And then again in 3 and 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. We are being baptized. Originally, baptism in the Jewish world was for you to be clean. Now you could go into the sanctuary. Now you can be found amongst the believers. But now we're a part of a different baptism. And what that does is it gives us a good conscience which with to relate to the Lord so that we shall know what the will of God is. Greek thought and reason, the power to think and to kind of reason with different ideas has us have all these categories that exist in city-states because what we're going to do if we don't have these categories in our world is unorganized. Lo and behold, how, how orderly does our world feel? <laughs> dominated by Greek thought, dominated by Western philosophy, died, you know, divided by how many categories of philosophy and psychology, yet it still feels chaotic. <laughs> so chaotic. But there is only a peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Through us with a good conscience relating to the Lord. Plato, who I find it interesting that the most, the two figures that are the most influential over Western thought never wrote a word. Socrates and Jesus never wrote a word that we have. But there's a platonic dialogue called the Phaedrus, and it is a conversation between two people, and it basically boils down to this. The soul is good and the soul is bad. The soul is pulling up to the heavenly divine and also down into the earth. It is this kind of dualism that keeps us locked in inactivity. But I don't think it's that simple, or actually I think it's more simple than that, that those kind of binary rules can never begin 
to explain the com- complex simplicity of the love of the gospel because it just doesn't make sense. And it's not in a category. How can God love me so much and say that to each and every person on earth without being duplicitous? I love you so much. I love you more than anything in the world. And I love you more than anything in the world. Like, what? (laughs) That's crazy. Then I have a child, and I start to get a glimpse and understand how that could be so. Could say, I love you so much. I love you more than anything. Oh, yeah, I love you more than anything. God is in the business of topping himself like a layer cake. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, that layer was good. Okay. Then you get another piece, and it's even better. There is a hope for us that lies beyond the hope, and it is found in Jesus. And it's not found in our ability to know exactly every single category that we exist in. And I think sometimes we can live as such divided people that we don't see what God is doing in the midst of us to bring us all together. Why is it so many times that we desire to divide or split or go somewhere by ourselves? Say amen, all the extroverts. Amen. <laughs> go to a party, you're like, man, I can't wait to get home and read this book. <laughs> God has made us so, so different in a way that we relate to each other. Um, And so many times, like, I love receiving prophetic words or encouragement from people remembering the promises that God has spoken over my life. And then what is the next question that we ask? When is it, God? Uh, Is it right now? Okay. Is it right now? Okay. Is it right now? Relentless, you know. But what if it's never now? Does that make our hope wane? Or does it make it burn even brighter? Like Jesus, your hope is about the immediacy of your love. And I need to feel it right now. I need to feel your provision right now or I'm not believing at all. What if his hope never manifests in your current situation? That's a crazy thought, right? No! (laughs) The gospel is not an input-output program for life satisfaction. It is knowing our, our hope rests in the eternal power of the resurrection. So many times we go before the cross, but never after the resurrection. You're like, what the heck does that mean? It means that we stay in a place of suffering and don't pursue the life that's in front of us. It should be nothing but life. And then 1 Peter 3 and 18, it says, but live according to the spirit, deaf in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the flesh breeds division, but the spirit yearns for unity. In Ephesians 4, 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. <laughs> in, through, around, he's in, he's in, we're one. The monotheism of the Jewish beliefs has given way to Jesus who is one in all, through all, and above all. So all that we yearn for has given us a foundation in Jesus. Does anybody here like a clean conscience? I love, I love those kind of people who like clean consciences because, you know, usually the mark of that is you over-apologize for stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. I don't mean to. Oh, oh, I don't mean to do that. <laughs> and I believe a clean conscience is key in understanding what God's will is. It's key that we would have a good conscience. That in First um, Peter four and two, that He no longer should live the rest of His time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for the will of God, the will of God. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Sometimes it's not that deep, you know, as all those words. They can sound like very heavy, you know, it's like, oh, man. I never even thought about anything like that. But it made me uh, remember when I was a kid and I, you know, I would do stuff. And... um one time, uh, I was uh, lighting matches and throwing them in a trash can. Because that's what kids do when your parents are in a you know, room or something. <laughs> lighting them and just throwing them in a <laughs> trash can. They were going out. God was having grace on me. They were going out. My brother did the same. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll do it. Throwing them in there. Except the trash can burnt down. It's like it was plastic. It just completely melted. <laughs> and so my dad, being a good father as he is, didn't spare the rod, <laughs> or else he might spoil the child. So he was spanking my brother. <laughs> my brother's like, ah, Nathan did it too. That's my real name. Nathan did it too. My dad calls me in there. Boy, would you light matches and throw them in a trash can? No, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, who can fault me for lying in that moment? It's like, yeah, I already know what's going to happen here if I say yes. <laughs> so I said, no, even in a bit, as a child, I know what the right thing is to say. Why is it that I know what's right and I do what I don't want to do, but I don't do what I do want to do? I think we underestimate the power of our conscience, which is the way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. It is the landing for his words, for his promises, for his little, his little um, pushes that happen. His little things that says, hey, don't go this way. And then you realize it was a wreck or something, and that would have cost you another 10 or 15 minutes. Or the little ways that he urges us to go in one direction over another. Why is it that I live in a place and I'm like, I don't know what the will of God is for my life? What is the state of your conscience? What is the state of the seat of where God speaks to you? 
when people say, I couldn't do this or I couldn't do that in good conscience, it means that we are considering, fully considering where we have peace, where we're hearing the Lord. We're not a divided self. We walk holistically in the fullness of who Jesus was. And I don't think Jesus ever saw that division, which is why he could restore somebody by healing them and he would affect their standing in society. There's justice. He would heal their physical bodies. There's physical. He would show himself and manifest himself as the son of God. There's spiritual. Restore to them the peace of the Lord. That's emotional. He managed, it, he managed to do that without ever ticking a box. That was who he was. He showed up in the fullness of who he was. When we are not paying attention to the way that God speaks to us through our conscience, we start to divide things like a pie and say, eh, you can have that, Lord. You can have this. You can have that. Because we don't realize that he has redeemed the fullness of us. And that's what we're called to step into. When people encounter that, they become changed and transformed. I was outside of UIC one day. We were having a conference at the forum, and we were going around. We love to do street ministry and just pray for people. And I came up to a dude, and I said, he was just sitting on a bench. I said, hey, man, you know how much God loves you. He thinks you're amazing. He thinks you're beautiful. He's called you to be a man of integrity, of honor, of joy and peace. The dude stood up and said, Stop. I'm sleeping with a woman that isn't my wife. I'm cheating on this. I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing this wrong. I'm like, whoa, ho, ho. I was just encouraging you, man. <laughs> I was just telling you who God thinks you are. But when we spend any time reflecting on how God really sees us, it really puts a little tension between who we are and who we ain't. And that shouldn't bring just shame that leaves us where we are. It should bring us into an encounter with his presence and who he is. How easy you think it was to lead this dude to the Lord? Super easy. <laughs> Fish jumping in the boat, you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> get it, Jesus. We exit the awareness of his will when we callous our conscience. How can I know his will when my own is hardened? I think of, you know, calluses you get on your foot if you're doing any running or whatever. You're just getting old like me. I'll be 37 this week. I'm a little old. <laughs> 37 años. You get a callus on your foot or whatever, and it's, you know, it just gets harder and harder, and um, eventually it might tear and come off, and what's under that is probably really tender, and it's hard to put anything on it at first. I think we do that to our conscience. Now, in the Bible, conscience is referred to as conscience or mind or heart, where we create a protective covering. Maybe we've been hurt a lot, or maybe we've been offended, and we're like, I don't want that to happen again. I'm going to put a protective cover on it. But you know what? It impairs the way that we hear the Lord. And it impairs the way 
that we are able to hear his undivided, focused voice. When God speaks, it is to touch every bit of us, every part of us. When we're not feeling good physically, we're probably not feeling good spiritually. When we're not feeling good emotionally, we're probably not feeling good in any other way. Psychically. How can we do that? I am amazed by our ability as believers who follow Jesus to numb our consciousness to what God is speaking to us. To numb our conscience, excuse me. Where we say, you know, God has been speaking to me about this thing. Eh, I'm not really going to do anything about that. I'm just going to kind of ignore that because I don't like it really. And that begins the callousness. It begins the indifference to the Lord attempting to move us one way or the other. Most of the time it's a defense mechanism. But so that we may know what the will of God is. First Peter 4 and 6, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit, understanding what his will for our life is, understanding what right or left looks like, keeping our consciousness, our, our conscience, our heart, our mind tenderized to the Holy Spirit because he is a dove. Doves are skittish. How did a dove land on Jesus' shoulder because a bruised reed he wouldn't break, a smoldering wick he wouldn't snuff out? He walked gently in life to fully consider God's will. He could say unequivocally that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is a bold claim. That is saying, I am reflecting. I am the very image of the invisible God. Not just because he was, but because he walked gently through the world and was overly concerned with the way he related to others, the way he held out a heart of compassion. The way God spoke to him about things that maybe he convinced he was doing right. So much of that. Our consciences can be handed down to us. You know what that's called? Tradition. Why do some people have a great conscience and they can go hunt and I don't? It's tradition. Passed down. I hate guns. I really do. <laughs> we receive all these things from our family, from our society that says this is how you are supposed to move in life. But I love to think about the day as we experience our consciousness through the template that is Christ. How come so many different Jesuses exist? There's Rambo Jesus. There's a conservative suit Jesus. Hippie Jesus. Like, 
broke Jesus, rich Jesus. It's like, come on, man. (laughs) What the heck is that about? (laughs) I thought it was just one Jesus. But think about the day when we have those revolutionaries, those who are willing to step in and help unnumb or uncover the collective consciousness of a nation that have received all of their behavior, not by Jesus, but through tradition. I think some of the greatest people who live, that's what they've done. This is what rightness is. This is how we relate to Jesus. This is the way that we relate to the Father. This is how we know we're walking in righteousness. And they say, ah, not necessarily so. Can we call each other into a higher place? Can we go before the cross, but after our conscience that is resurrected by the risen king so that what we do is in perfect harmony with who he is? This is not works-oriented. This is not list-oriented. This is the gentle walking of believers in the world. Keep diligent watch over your heart because from it flow all of the issues of life. Offense, bitterness. You know, Christians are not very good at like overt sin. You know, it's like we got that pretty much taken care of. Offense and bitterness, that's another one. I'm offended (laughs) by everything. I never get offended personally, but no. (laughs) Facebook, it's like definition is a Christian offense engine. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm offended by that. Oh, gosh. (laughs) But what happens is our decision to numb our conscience will cause us to hear and live divided lives. And Jesus said, I want to be Lord of it all. All of it, all of it, not just a bit. How are you going to give the enemy unfettered access to your life? Give your life to me and then start dividing it. Ah, you can't have my resources, really, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, you can't really have my time. I'll see what I can, I can tack you on at the end of the week, you know. And he wants all of it. But he's so loving about it, you know what I'm saying? You feel like you got all the time in the world to take your time. It's like, all right, Jesus, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do about it. But I love the urgency of love. The urgency of the gospel. It's not the urgency that's predicated upon punishment that's coming. It's predicated upon the love that is here for each and every one of us. So I think his resurrected power is for us that our conscience will be As they are resurrected, we understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. In his last sermon before he died, Martin Luther King said, 
I don't really care what happens to me now. I just want to do God's will. What? You have actually embraced who he has created you to be to such an extent that you don't care overtly for your life, but for his will. That's amazing. That's wonderful. The boundaries of God's will are well known by a tender and resurrected conscience. Well known. One thing I love about being married to my wife for 12 years. Yeah! Is that it's hard for things to get between us because we're both like our, we, you can tell when something is wrong with us. You know people like that. They're just like walk, pacing around and they don't pace or something. You know, it's like, what's going on? Our ability to share what's on our hearts quickly gives the enemy no time to get in between us. And it doesn't mean we don't have things that we still need to work on and all that. But I believe that that gentleness is key in every relationship because it doesn't divide our loyalty and it doesn't um, allow the conflict to happen with things that are unknown and just stuffed and put in the ground. And so many times leaders fall or people are, you know, mired sometimes in sin and you wonder, how could that happen how could that happen? Numbing your conscience. You do an action. Holy Spirit says, ah, I wouldn't do that again. You do that action. Ah, before you even get to the action, remember Jesus said, it's not when you have sinned, it is when you considered it in your heart that you've done it. So we consider things in our heart before they ever become action. When we're considering in our heart, Holy Spirit is like, ah, I don't think you want to do that. Bitterness, anger, Unforgiveness starts to weaken our ability to see that. We go, ah, he's like, don't do that. We do it. Holy Spirit is like, hey, you don't want to do that. And all the time, our mind, our heart, our conscious, conscience is becoming more and more calloused. We're distancing ourselves from his words. We're distancing ourselves from his influence. And people end up way down the road and we wonder to ourselves, how did it happen? I believe the Holy Spirit is like, probably talked to somebody about 50 million times about something. But our determination and our free will that's been granted by the Lord allows us to choose a way. And lose the tenderness of hearing what his voice, what his will what his heart is for us. Is there a way for us to value that voice speaking to us that has been since we're a child? And it's for people who are not believers too, because guess what? Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are created in God's image. So there is a moral compass inside that directs and guides you that can be numbed in the same way. People who participate in gratuitous violence, people in the city who shoot people and stuff like that, do you think that happened in a day? Probably not. Do 
divided hearts starts to numb us to what's right and wrong, whether it's tradition or people around you or, hey, this is cool. You shouldn't worry about that. But Jesus has given us the ability to see him as a template for our hearts. And in this way, God begins to prepare us for wonderful and amazing things. And seeing in the midst of everything that we do, he is preparing us. He is preparing you. I want to get married. I want to get married right now. (laughs) It would be awesome. How are you with that tender heart thing? How are you with understanding how amazing God's plan is for your life? And even in times, it could be, you know, we doubt it. And we don't go as quickly as we should to take care of it. But I pray that God would give us a tender heart. And in the moment of salvation so for so many people, they're just like in a puddle on the ground or in tears, having this amazing encounter with God's love because off comes all the callousness in one moment. And that tenderness allows us to feel God's love for us. Oh, my gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> I've decided not to feel because I may get hurt, but that is where your strength is. That's where the butter is. It's having children summed up somewhat is uh, creating another multiple of possibility of being hurt. Simply, once they get older, you have like all these people who have your heart and that may even increase that opportunity. Is it worth it? Yes. It's worth it. The tender heart. Don't let anyone take the power of the gospel from you, which is to love those who don't deserve to be loved or to love those who have hardened hearts. In Exodus, it said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did it. Why would he do such a thing? Because he had to break every single bit of slavery that the Israelites were in. Not just mental, spiritual, physical. All these different slaveries that intertwine. And Jesus said, you know what? God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to face off with every single one of those gods to show my superiority and break them out of the mental bondage that they've been in. So why are there 10 plagues? Because there are 10 gods, 10 major gods in Egypt. Oh, there's a god of uh, the light. So what do I do? I bring darkness. There's a god of the Nile. So what do I do? I make the blood in the Nile. He is a holistic, holy, set-apart god, set to confront every bit of trials and obstacles we have. 
we let them into this fullness without being divided or numbed or calloused. And it's like him breaking through. In Genesis, there's a story of Jacob. And, you know, Jacob was a little trickster. He was a liar. He only told white lies, though. But <laughs> he was a trickster. And his father Laban said, I'll give you all the speckled and spotted sheep. You can have those. He figured out a way to shave off pieces of branches and put them where the sheep and the goats drank. And it made them produce more. And I, I assume the Lord probably told him that. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's creative, man. So where they drank is where they produced and more and more speckled and spotted sheep until they overtook all of the numbers and made Jacob super rich. And I think about that story, and it's, I think it's a lot of lessons in it, but it also shows that we will reproduce what we drink. We will recreate what we worship. I pray that we are drinking, feeding upon the living water. And as such, we reflect who he is in our worship to him. We are reflections of this beautiful father. It's no simple thing to sit in here and raise our hands to the Lord. We are reflecting and reproducing the goodness of the light that he shines upon us. And create in me, Lord, a clean heart and purify me. Why? So that I may worship you. So that I can lift up my hands in your sanctuary and know how amazingly perfect your will is for me. You want to come on up, worship team? I'll say sometimes that we think we're way better at avoiding pain than we really are, you know? <laughs> but I think of the overcoming Jesus would he ever have avoided jury duty? Probably not. There's this boldness that comes in us when we know that we're the reflection of our king. And he has been gracious enough to give us his son so that we may know what, the, what his will is.
For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. 